Namo tatta bhagavato arahanto tamma tambo datta Namo tatta bhagavato arahanto tamma tambo datta Namo tatta bhagavato arahanto tamma tambo datta I'd like to uh, start off today by honoring my beloved teacher, Tunkulu Kabaye Siero, Burmese forest monk. The pronunciation that you heard for the Nemo Tassa is the Burmese Pali, where the S's become T's and TH's. Today, I, um, after lunch, took a walk. Behind the parking lot, there is a tennis court former tennis court, and on that tennis court, which uh, of course is no, nothing left that shows that it was a tennis court, but uh, on that piece of pavement is what's called a sema, and a sema is an ordination site to, um, for two purposes. One, it is a site where you can ordain monks, and the other is that on the new and full moon, the monks go to the Sema and they recite what's called the Padimokha, the 227 Rules of Discipline. And Tempo Lucero put in this Sema, it was around 1983 when we were here, and it's a, to consecrate this land, it took about three days where the monks divided this piece of land into small boxes, maybe two to three feet wide and maybe about five or six feet long. And there's many of them. And you'll actually see the boxes if you go for a walk around the SEMA, which is in between these cement posts. And there inside those um, little blocks, three or four monks would huddle in there and they would chant for about 20, 25 minutes, consecrating this land and then go off to the next box and the next box. It took about three days. And just walking on that land, the Sema, the ordination site, is such a, to me, and within the Buddhist Dharmic world, a very holy and sacred place. And I was overwhelmed with the gratitude and the feelings of the Dharma. What would I have been like? Well, who would I be if without these teachings? And just immense gratitude and tears. And, and reflecting upon um, many of the monks that were inside those boxes chanting are now dead. So many years have gone by. So many years have gone by in my life. So just powerful to take this all in. So I dedicate um, this talk tonight to my teachers and to you, with whom forever I am immensely grateful beyond words can say. These teachings transformed my life from my very first retreat where um, there was this teaching that my first Vipassana teacher, Dr. Rina Sirkar, I'm just so grateful, was speaking about the importance of acknowledgement is knowledge. To acknowledge what is within you, you're gaining knowledge. And 
that notion really changed a lot of the course of my life because I think up to that point being a student in psychology I was trying to figure things out and analyze my problems and not getting very much uh, understanding about them and this whole notion of what she was implying was to acknowledge what it is that you're feeling let yourself experience it let yourself feel it observe it allow it let it be acknowledge it and that really scared the heck out of me and I think I used analyzing as a way to kind of separate and to get disconnected from what I was feeling and this notion of turning into acknowledging was a revelation and I began to discover as I began to turn into my pain and acknowledge it I was feeling lighter. So that was a remarkable blessing and teaching from that first retreat that even to this day so many years later still rhymes a deep resonance and joy within me. Acknowledgement is knowledge. And it was quite a first retreat. I mentioned to you about falling asleep in the meditation hall and knocking over someone. And um, I also was the wood tender. It was, a, it was a wood stove in the meditation hall and <laughs> I would get it so hot in there that people were almost passing out. I, I think I had to just keep busy, you know, because and I didn't know about meditation etiquette. Whenever I went into the, to every sitting, if there was an empty pillow, I'd just go sit on it. <laughs> I didn't know that I was pissing off a lot of people. <laughs> so just wherever you go. So you go in to find your, your zafu and this, this guy sitting on it. <laughs> and then I thought also that everybody was kind of depressed. No one was talking. No one was looking at one another. And I'm trying to make contact and smile and you know, kind of lighten people up. They're so sad. <laughs> I didn't quite get the scene yet. <laughs> and um, so it was something. I can't imagine my life without these teachings. Came across a very powerful reading a while back from Hurricane Carter, who was a prize fighter. And he was falsely accused of murder and spent time in jail. And, he says this, that the most memorable bout I ever had in my life was with myself. I had to fight all the bullshit, all of the arrogance, all of those things. When I was in solitary confinement, I was in a state of hatred. I hated everybody. I hated the judge. I hated the criminal who said I was at the scene of the crime. And I had to come to terms with that. Finally, I had to give it up. And that took a long time, but I knew that I had to be free. And that was my mission, to remain free, to stay above the prison system, which is the lowest level of human existence. Spirituality to me is a conscious mind, and I've studied religions from Buddhism to Christianity. I've studied them all, and I've come to find out that spirituality means a conscious mind, someone who is awake rather than asleep. Sleeping people kill one another. Sleeping people make war on one another. Sleeping people do all kinds of terrible things to one another. I would rather be awake. Hurricane Carter. These teachings of the Dharma for me are so complete, both in it's teachings on how to live life, how to live my life, bodily, mentally, 
The great teachings of virtue, concentration, and wisdom, each feeding and supporting one another. Richard talked last night about the qualities and subtleties of samadhi, concentration, one-pointedness, unification of mind, and also he talked about a quality of an undistractability of mind. I like that word undistractability because it then brought up for me a thought, well, how do we become undistracted? And of course, we use different meditation objects such as the breath, and there's actually many other objects that one can use to develop this undistractedness of mind. But the question remains, and I know that many of us are, are still in the midst of it, what do we do when the distractions arise? And I've heard many in our interviews, and I don't have to go far outside of myself to know the distractions, they're in my own mind as well. And how do we deal with these distractions? So I thought that this would be an important conversation to have tonight, because yes, we're talking about the steadiness of mind, which has these qualities of undistractability, but obviously that's in uh, the, the counter opposite of distracting aspects of the mind. And how do we work with these distracting aspects? No doubt we can suppress them. We can avoid them. We can deny them. But when you know it, just when you're not looking, hello, they're back again. As much as we want to push them away, it almost seems that the very much pushing them away is the fuel for its reoccurrence. It kind of reminds me of Bill Murray in Groundhog Day and it took him a lot of times before he finally got it right. I loved Richard's story of the Blue Jays. The Blue Jays became his teachers, and it's very funny because I also have a bird story too. <laughs> and I'd like to share it with you, with the roosters. And I lived in a Buddhist monastery for many years. And uh, this was uh, mostly in Boulder Creek, a little bit of time in Burma as well, in Boulder Creek, California, that is. And Unbeknownst to me, one day out of the redwoods came six roosters and they moved into the monastery. Perhaps they had heard through the rooster vine that the monks were giving out free food after lunch every day because they would just leave food on the tree stumps for all the beings. Whatever reason, they came in and they moved in. And coming from originally from right outside of Boston, you know, my knowledge of uh, roosters and farm life was probably through the Green Acres, the television show growing up. And, you know, they cockle-doodle-doo in the morning, and then you go off and you do your work during your day, but not these roosters. They were cockle-doodle-doing four in the morning, four in the afternoon, ten in the morning, ten at night, any time, day or night, these roosters were cockle-doodle-doing. And on Saturdays, we would have every Saturday a day-long meditation. And I would sit there. Meditation hall was on the first floor. And the roosters would like to often hop up onto the windowsills of the first floor and cockle-doodle-doo all day long. <laughs> Richard and I were comparing notes last night on the different methods and ways. When, you, when you're sitting all day, you have a lot of time to think about how you want to kill those bugs. <laughs> And you can get very creative. 
can sit on it, drown it, fire it, poison it, shoot it, bow and arrow, gas it. I mean, you can get creative. And if you ever try to catch a rooster, it's just about impossible. I was angry and mad. I was also thinking no one will ever come to the monastery. We'll drive everyone out. And so I went and told my old teacher, Leindet Sero, who was uh, next to Tungpulu Sero, in rank, if you will. And Leindet Sero was really my root, beloved father teacher. And I was telling him about the roosters, and I looked at him, and then I just saw this little part of his cheek go up and down, and I knew I was going to have it at that moment. <laughs> and he said to me, you don't know anything about meditation. These roosters are here to help you. Hearing, hearing, anger, anger. Go back to the meditation hall and meditate. And so like an obedient student with my tail in between my legs, I came back to the meditation hall and decided that I will take these roosters on as my practice. Now, I can't say it always worked. But what I can say that there was moments that eventually came by that the rooster cockle-doodle-doing just became sounds and the sounds just rised and passed away. And metaphorically speaking, just like there's blue jays everywhere you go, there's a whole bunch of roosters and they've, they've come into the meditation hall too. And no doubt, you know, at times we can be irritated with the way one's breathing or the way one's sitting or also conversely we're falling in love with this person. I mean, there's all types of stuff that can go on here with our projections from our own mind. And so I think it's very important, particularly in the theme of this retreat, in the sense of we're working on trying to help steady the mind to develop insight. How do we work with these, what we call, distractions as practice? So this is really what I want to get into tonight, is to talk about this. I will say that when we take on a practice like this, as John Kabat-Zinn would say, it's not for the faint of heart. It's not like we're trying to escape or go away or suppress or deny or avoid, but we're actually willing to meet the full catastrophe, if you will, to meet our lives and what we're experiencing here and now. And it is not easy. But then again, I'll have to say, what else is there to do? This is a noble path of healing and awakening. But may we tread lightly in this work. Richard and I have spoken a lot about the words self-compassion, doing the best that you can. Now, I know for many of us, we hear the word self-compassion, and we understand it from a Webster's Dictionary point of view, but it's another thing to actually, what would it be like to feel into that word and, and labor with yourself too? What would it be like to experience it, to hold our practice in a kind way? So really, I want to invite you to explore that in this retreat as well. So as I said, this is not for the faint of heart, this practice at times. It's noble work, difficult work, working on ourselves. But I, I love, I want to just quote you a little bit of a reading from Pema Chodron that speaks about this. And she says that generally speaking, we regard discomfort in any form as bad news. I think we can relate to that. But for, for practitioners or spiritual warriors, people who have a certain hunger to know what's true, 
Feelings like disappointment, embarrassment, irritation, resentment, anger, jealousy, fear, instead of being bad news, are actually very clear moments that teach us where it is that we're holding back. They teach us to perk up and lean in when we feel we'd rather collapse and back away. They're at times like messengers that show us with terrifying clarity exactly where it is that we're stuck. This moment, the present moment, is the perfect teacher, and lucky for us, it's with us wherever we are. And actually, I really appreciate this, is, uh, this next quote from a shaman from the Caribou Eskimo tribe. How I got this, I have no idea. It's called, and it's, 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 this person's name is Igjagaruk. Wise, however. True wisdom lies far from humankind. It's out of loneliness and suffering that it can be reached. Privation and suffering alone open the mind, the heart, to all that is hidden to others. In some ways, we can say being here, we are experiencing, even though we are in community, our own privation, our own at times, our own suffering, but of course, at times, our own joy. We're in this silence together. I got a note from a yogi today. I'd like to read you part of it. To me, uh, this note is a bullseye, in the center of the bullseye. The person says, you heard the story today. My goal is to obtain a reasonable sense of inner peace wisdom, and compassion in the midst of this world of suffering. Is this possible? Do I need a teacher? Do I have to sit for a month or a year? What's important for me? My goal is to obtain a reasonable state, a reasonable sense of inner peace, wisdom, and compassion in the midst of this world of suffering. Mm. Can you feel that? That's so real. That's real, what a question. Can you feel it? Yeah. How do you answer that type of a question? Thought right away of Bob Dylan, the answer my friend's blown in the wind, but I don't know. (laughs) But perhaps it is, in the silence. I remember so many nights sitting with my teacher, Leinditzjero. He'd be sitting in his chair and I'd be on the floor, many times just lying down next to him. And I would just listen to him breathe. And I was like in the forest. The forest speaks. Listen. Kabir says, are you looking for me? I am in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours, but you'll not find me in the stupas, not in the Indian shrine rooms, nor in the synagogues, nor in the cathedrals, not in the masses, not in the legs winding around your neck, 
nor in eating nothing but vegetables. When you really look for me, you will see me instantly. You will find me in the tiniest house of time. Inside the breath, inside the breath. How do we make peace with ourselves? That haunting question. I have a dear friend, Gail, who passed away last year. Very close friend. A yogi. And she was aware of her limited time and she wrote a very beautiful note to us, her friends. And she writes, So as the days of winter continue to nourish the earth and the fluid from the skies, I have begun to contemplate this situation that I find myself in. She was dying of lung cancer. There's this undercurrent of experience that I'm just waiting around to die. Strange thing when you're told that your time is limited, that many future projects and projections just disappear from consciousness. Now I'm left with this question of being fully awake to each passing day, hour, and minute. Old habits are really hard to change so often, so I find myself just wasting time. Granted, I have a lot more time now to meditate and be still, but my mind keeps questioning just what I could be doing with this time left to me. I wonder if this is just the patterns of behavior that are familiar to me, keeping me busy doing all these good works, all the messages that I've followed in the past. But now, though, I am too tired to do too much. And so the dilemma is allowing myself to let go of the old messages and discover new ways to enrich my day-to-day -day life. This, my friends, is a challenge. And I never realized how stubborn I am about who I think I am. So this weaker and more vulnerable me is trying to learn about allowing myself to just let go of the past and really step into this moment. Gail Lewis. So this weaker and more vulnerable me is trying to learn about allowing myself to just let go of the past and really step into this moment. So it really appears to me that in order to steady the mind, we do have to deal with what's making it unsteady. We might be able to suppress it, deny it, push it back for a while, but again, just as we're not looking, it comes back. It appears obvious at the right time that we do need to include these distractions as part of our practice, period. Perhaps this is the entranceway into the heart of stillness or the ability to be still and settle and stabilize the mind. That perhaps within the pain, the fear, the anguish, the confusion, the numbness, and the sadness, our heart is waiting to be found. Stephen Levine, he calls these guys, these teachers, you're in drag. They've just come in drag to wake you up. That's why a lot of the Tibetan 
uh, images have these pictures of the, the deity of compassion as this really scary looking figure. They've come to wake us up, showing us where it is that we're holding back. It's a beautiful des description of Buddha nature from Hafiz. It says, I wish I could show you when you are lonely or in darkness the astonishing light of your own being. So perhaps we need to begin to pay attention, to begin to discover our own light within us, to pay attention to what is distracting us and bring this sense of discernment in. Discernment is wise attending. This wise attending comes from our direct experience with our practice. This wise attending says, move a little bit to the left. The wise attending says, no, move a little bit to the right. Stop, move, go up, go down. There's a whole titration. Through our own direct experience of the practice, we begin to learn to move in when it's right to move in, step back, we move back, and so forth. At times, we may want to decide to put more effort into the breath or other objects that we're using to help steady the mind. And at other times, it may be taking a step back from the breath and bringing awareness and acknowledgement to the emotions at hand that are on an emotional Richter scale of a 9.5. If we don't acknowledge what is within us, it will haunt us. And we will not be able to steady our mind. I don't believe that it's really possible to steady the mind. To I mean, we can steady it some, but I think it perhaps is equivalent in some ways to our ability to begin to acknowledge what is not acknowledged within us. There's a very powerful quote from Jesus from the Gospel of Thomas and says, if you say what's within you, what you say within you will save you. And if you don't say what's within you, what you don't say can destroy you. Very powerful words, power of truth. Our ability to be able to steady the mind, to develop samadhi, concentration, undistractability, in some ways has some equivalency to our ability also to begin to deal and work with what is distracting us and beginning to acknowledge those places within us. And I know from our interviews, it's, there's a lot of stuff being generated. There's a mythological story from the Maori culture in the South Seas. Christine Hubbard, who's an anthropologist, uh, wrote about it, about this one indigenous culture that had no doctors, no indigenous medicine, no shamans. And when asked one day with the villagers, well, how do people get healed when they're sick? And the elder said, well, it's easy. What we do is we bring the person into a circle, and all the villagers gather around the person. And then one of the villagers asks just one question. And then they wait, and they listen. And that question is, what has been left unsaid? what has been left unsaid. 
And the villagers wait, sometimes a few minutes, sometimes an hour, sometimes a half a day, sometimes a few days, sometimes longer, until all that has been unsaid is said. And they say that the cure rate is 98%. <laughs> now this is a mythological story, but there's some very powerful teachings, the power of truth, the power of acknowledging. And it doesn't mean necessarily that we have to say it out loud to another when I'm saying the, the, the main, I mean, that might be skillful for us to say it out loud to another, but most importantly is our ability to say it to ourselves, to begin to acknowledge what is unsaid within us. The truth can begin to set you free. Just even this retreat, I came across some areas inside me where I'm feeling the deep pains of resentment. And as I've been sitting with resentment, cooking with it, something opened up and I began to discover some understanding of what was fueling that resentment and so much spaciousness has come. So much more ease of awareness. I could see directly how that these impediments, if you will, or the weight, the hardened heart can cause a sense of distractibility that, I, that I, it's difficult to stay onto an object if this other thing's arising. Buddhist literature, the power of truth, is well known, and there's a very powerful story of Angulimala, I'm sure some of you have heard of, and he was a murderer, collecting thumbs of his victims, creating a, a, a necklace, and he needed to get two more thumbs to complete it, and saw the Buddha in the distance said, this will be a good prize, and I'm going to go kill him. And the Buddha with his powers of awareness could uh, understand his intention and perform the magical act that as Angulimala started walking towards him, the Buddha always remained the same distance. And when Angulimala saw that he wasn't getting any closer, he began to run. Then he began to charge. And as much as he was charging, he was still the same distance away until finally he collapsed on the ground, just totally exhausted. And then the, he heard some footsteps and the Buddha walked up to him and said, friend, what are you doing? <laughs> and Angulimala explained about getting the fingers and completing the garland. And he said, you're on the wrong path. And he began to teach him the Dharma right there. And when you know it, the eye of awakening arose in Angulimala and he attained some awakening. And he asked right on the spot, will you go Jamie as a monk? And the Buddha said, ehi piko, come on, come monk and he became ordained as a monk on that spot. And in a period of time, he attained the higher levels of enlightenment. And the story goes that one day he was in alms round and he came across, uh, heard this woman screaming, help, help. And he ran over to her and it was a woman in labor. And she was saying, you have to help me, you have to help me. And, he didn't know what to do. He said, I, I, I have to go talk to my master. I'll be right back. And he just took off and he ran to see the Buddha, which was close, close by. And he ran to the Buddha and said, what do I do? What do I do? And he said, tell her something that's true. And then he started running back really fast. And he's thinking, well, tell me something that's true. What's true? I don't know what's true. And then as he could hear her crying and he came closer, he realized there was a truth. And he says, by the power of the truth that I have not hurt in any life since the ordination, 
by this truth may you be healed. And he said this three times, and at the third time, the baby supposedly came out safe, the mother was safe. And this is a tradition in Buddhist literature of performing acts of truth for healing. So may the truth set us free. To this day, Buddhist monks, whenever they visit a household where there is a pregnancy, they will chant the Anguli Mala Sutta to the mother-to-be three times. We know that it's not easy, this path of awareness, of working with the distractions that come up that prevent us from studying the mind. But again, what else is there to do? And you know, when you think about equations in mathematics, Kafka has a very interesting equation. He says, you know, you have your suffering whether you want to deal with it or not. But if you don't deal with it, you get two sufferings. <laughs> so what do you want? You want one or two? Of course, when we begin that arduous journey of taking a look what's underneath the hood of what's going on inside us, it's like, OMG. <laughs> I learned all these uh, little things from my sons. <laughs> OMG, oh my God, CTPOS, can't talk, parent over shoulder. <laughs> WTF, I won't say what that is. Oh, <laughs> what the? <laughs> so as we bring the light of awareness into us, it's also, you know, it, it can be challenging. And, you know, and sometimes because we bring the light of awareness into what's going on and we're actually paying attention, there can be at first a, a, a sort of a magnification, an amplification, and that's really good to know. And the reason that there is an amplification, like all of a sudden I'm feeling a little sadness, a little anger, a little fear, and I all of a sudden bring the flashlight of awareness to it, all of a sudden it feels to get a little bigger, and the reason that it's getting bigger is I'm actually bringing my attention there. But at that critical point, often we exit stage right. But if we hang there a little bit longer, we may begin to see that something else happens. So we're learning slowly, slowly to dip into the cold water as it's hot, dipping into the toes. Before you know it, your foot is playing in the water. We're acclimating ourselves to the temperature. And we can begin to work with acclimating to these distractions that are contributing to the unsteadiness of the mind. So this is from a Christian mystic in the Middle Ages, Francis Fenelon, and he uses wonderful Middle Age language here, so I trust you'll appreciate it. He goes, as the light of awareness increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We're amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. <laughs> we never could have believed that we had harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them appear. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them can wax brighter, and we can be filled with horror. So please, bear in mind, for your comfort, that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. Bear in mind, for your comfort, we only perceive the malady 
when the cure begins. When we begin to embrace these aspects of our distractions, our aloneness, our fear, our losses, our emptiness, our pains, our angers, there's a possibility of transformation. Jennifer Wellwood writes in her poem, Unconditional, willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fears, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end for each condition that I flee from, it pursues me while each condition I welcome transforms me. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me. And of course, in our Buddhist literature, great, powerful, epic story of the Vigil of the Buddha's awakening on the night of his awakening and Mara was storming his armies of seduction and fear. And every time Mara came to attack the Buddha, the Buddha would just open his eyes and look straight at Mara, look at the seductions, look at the armies of fear and say, I see you, Mara. I see you. The power of awareness dispels the darkness. I see you, Mara. Even one candle, one single candle in a dark room, that light dispels the darkness. The power of seeing, naming, acknowledging, I see you, Mara, dispels the distracted mind. I see you anger, I see you resentment, I see my place in my investment in wanting to be right, or whatever story it is that we're carrying, I see you, Mara. Again, in working with our challenges, and the Buddhists have all these lists, and one of them is greed, hatred, and ignorance. These are the three roots of the, of the distractions of the mind. And my teacher, Tampulo Cero, and I mentioned this the other night, he says, if you know that you're experiencing greed, and we could say the same thing for hatred or delusion, if you know that greed is arising, you are gaining knowledge. I see you, Mara. If you don't know that greed is arising, you're accumulating more unawareness, more ignorance. The power in the operative word is awareness. Awareness dispels darkness. I see you. When we ex speak about the Buddha having experienced the unconditioned, I really think in many ways what we're talking about is that he broke three, free of the conditioned self, or sometimes in psychology we'll say the narrative-based self, our story. Margaret Wheatley, she writes, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. We create ourselves by what we choose to notice, and once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created. We self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. 
when we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal. We can notice something new. So the shift of moving outside the processes of self-reference and looking upon ourselves with self-awareness, that's what we're doing here. We're bringing more awareness to our story, to our life. Part of our challenge is our ability, our willingness to go beyond our perceptions, but they're difficult because we have, um, I love now that we have in computer languages like, like a default button, things default back and our personality, our whole matrix of our narrative-based self, it, it, it's, it's the default button of who we are. Awareness kind of wakes us up for a moment. Oh, I've been in the Bob show this past hour. Okay, wait a minute, now I, I've come to again. But the power is, of our self-definitions and how we think we see things can become so solidified. It's like being on a train track. We're not able to see outside of ourselves. And the, to me, this is one of the most revolutionary aspects of meditation practice is the possibility that, that I'm not my thoughts, that, that there are, there's an ability to ha somehow step out, to be able to observe the thoughts or observe these actions. And that one that is observant of it is not caught in that whole story. But it's easy to get caught in our story because we have our story and we default back into it. It's born out of our habitual patterns through years of living. So there was a woman one night that was at an airport. And with several long hours before her flight, she hunted for a book in the airport shop and she bought a bag of cookies and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that beside her, as bold as could be, a man grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. She munched cookies and watched the clock as this gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by and thinking if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. And when there was only one left, she wondered what he'd do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and he broke it in half. And he offered her half as he ate the other, and she snatched it from him and thought, oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also rude why he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called and she gathered her belongings and headed for the gate, refusing to look back at that thieving ingrate. She boarded the, boarded the plane and sank in her seat, then sought out her book, which was almost complete. And as she reached in her bag, she gasped with surprise, for there was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. If mine are here, she moaned with despair, then the others were his, and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. Our perceptions. 
It can also step onto paranoia. I bet we can relate to this. We, who are your closest friends, feel the time has come to tell you that every Thursday night we've been meeting as a group to devise ways to keep you perpetually uncertain, frustrated, discontent, and tortured by neither loving you as much as you want nor cutting you adrift. Your analyst is in on it, and so is your boyfriend and your ex-husband, and we pledge to disappoint you as long as you need us. In announcing our association, we realize we placed in your hands a possible antidote against uncertainty, indeed against ourselves, but since our Thursday nights have brought us to a community of purpose rare in itself, with you as the natural center, we feel hopeful you will continue to make unreasonable demands for affection, if not as a consequence of your disastrous personality, then good for the collective. We laugh because we know that place inside us. I know that place inside me. So what would it be like to begin to make these distractions our teachers? Rumi speaks of them as his guest house. He says, welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house and empty all of its furniture. Pretty radical stuff. This retreat, we're working to cultivate, again, as I said, our steadiness of mind, to see more clearly into the nature of, of our suffering. Because we're working to steady the mind, everything is coming up that's showing us where we need to bring attention to. This is it. No doubt we can work with our practice in developing our meditative absorptions and Light, stillness, calm, tranquility, emptiness, formlessness, immense space. Also, we're dedicating this work, as Rich is mentioning, towards the taste of freedom. That this practice of samadhi can be used to experience the taste of freedom. Freedom is the lessening and the eventual eradication of greed, hatred, and ignorance. Loba, dosa, and moha. It's said that there's no fire hotter than greed, no ice colder than hatred, no fog thicker than ignorance. When we begin to study the mind and develop our penetrating insight, we can begin to see into the Four Noble Truths, not just as some conceptual idea, but a penetration into the understanding of suffering its cause, its path to its end. We begin to penetrate into the erroneous view of this self-narrative, of the changing nature of phenomena, of, of the dissatisfactoriness that happens in life. We can begin to become like a non-volcanic mountain that can remain motionless and still in the midst of change. We speak about Achancha sitting like in a clear forest pool, and many animals will come and go, and in time you will understand the nature of all things. You will know the happiness of a Buddha. The same as another beautiful metaphor is that non-volcanic mountain that remains motionless and still in the midst of change. We speak about this as a wisdom factor, equanimity, that is not complacency, 
not resignation, but this wise understanding of the nature of change, unperturbed. This is a very important quality in developing steadiness, but more importantly in developing deeper wisdom. I hear all the time about, with a, you know, this was a good meditation, this was a bad meditation. The one that has equanimity, there's no good, there's no bad. Weather systems moving in, weather systems moving out. None to be pushed away, none to be clinged to or grasped on with, just phenomena as it rolls on and on. And this deeper understanding of change bringing us balance, bringing us spaciousness, bringing us freedom. Our search for satisfaction at times feels endless, and of course, the, the suffering that it brings. And I just want to read to you a very, one of the most beautiful, powerful translations of the noble truth of the cause of suffering by Ajahn Amaro. He says, this bhikkhu, bhikkhus is the noble truth of the cause of suffering, and it is craving. Craving that is compelling, intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again. Ever seeking delight now here, now there. It is namely the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, or the craving to feel nothing. craving that is compelling, intoxicating, causing us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now here, now there, namely craving for sensual delight, craving to be something, craving to feel nothing. I love this poem by Kabir. It speaks about the happiness of the release of wanting. He says, I went searching for the shop where the merchant would say, there's nothing of value here. I found it and I stayed. These poems arise out of the richness of not wanting. The taste of the Dharma is the taste of freedom. To live with an open heart, a fearless heart, it's actually very interesting that when sometimes the noble ones are referred to as the fearless ones. I think it's a beautiful rendering. The fearless ones. I aspire to live and to die as fully awake as I can. To be free of resentment, which burdens the heart and hardens it. I'll tell you a story about dying. My beloved teacher, Lainded Sedo, he died at the age of 98. He was a monk for 78 years. And then before that, he was a novice monk. So you don't start counting monk years till you're 20. And um, he died about maybe six, 
six years ago or more. And I went to visit him about 10, 11 years ago in Burma. And on the last night of my visit, it was going to be my last conversation with him, and I didn't know whether I would ever see him again, and it turns out I never did. So my last conversation with him was this. I said, Seattle, you're now, he was in his you know, low 90s at that point, and I said, you know, uh, you, you're going to probably die sometime soon. You're in your 90s, and... Um, and of course I said, Sido, I mean, I know that anyone can die at any moment. But you're, you're in your 90s, and what are you going to do? You've been a monk 70-some years, and what are you going to do when death comes knocking on your door? I was really curious. I really wanted to know what he would say. And he looked at me for a really long time, and then he smiled. Then he says something to me that threw me off. He said, Bob, are you afraid to die? <laughs> Wait a minute. Sido, I didn't ask you that question. <laughs> And he looked at me and saw that I was shaken, and he said, you got to meditate more. <laughs> yes, Seto, he's absolutely correct. And after acknowledging that, I again repeated the question to him. And again, he looked at me for a really long time, and then he smiled, and then he said something to me that I'll never forget, and I'll pass it on to you. I actually told my grandmother when uh, she died at the age of 103, and I told her this when she was around 100, and she said, he was a wise man. What Sato said to me, and I'll never forget, he said, Bob, if I see something, I will be mindful of seeing. If I hear something, I will be mindful of hearing. If I feel something, I'll be mindful of feelings. If I smell or taste something, I'll be mindful of smelling or tasting. If there's things that are coming up in my mind and awareness, I'll be mindful of my mind states. This is how I'll die. This is how I want you to die. <sighs> to die fully awake, fully present, meeting this life fully. Living it fully engaged, I have a friend, Saki, who says, when I die, I want to be fully used up. I love that. <laughs> fully used up. Not one left of iota of life in me, and every single iota used up to its fullest. So coming back to the yogi, how do we live our lives to obtain a reasonable sense of inner peace in the midst of the world of suffering? Well, there's more that can be said found in the Dharma, and I think that it really synthesizes itself in the Noble Eightfold Path, and that's going to have to be a talk for another night. <laughs> but I think if that's the direction that I want to take, because I think within the Noble Eightfold Path, it is all laid out. And it's not laid out in a very dogmatic sense. It's try and see. Ehi pasiko, opaneiko. See for yourself with your own direct experience. So I'll just end with a, a couple of reflections of, of some readings that um, actually, again, I think is from this yogi's uh, question about how do I obtain a reasonable sense of inner peace in the midst of the world of suffering. And this is from Mary Oliver. There's a poem called The Summer Day. And Perhaps many of you know it with these haunting lines at the end. 
I'll read you the poem, and then I want to read you um, a later poem of hers. And so she says on the summer day, Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who's eating sugar out of my hand and who's moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Isn't it nice just to stop and hear, like, just watch a grasshopper moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, and who's gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes, and now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face, and now she snaps her wings open and she floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is, but I do know how to pay attention and to fall into the grass. I know how to kneel down in the grass and be idle and feel blessed and stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day long. Tell me what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me. What is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? She wrote that many years ago, and just recently she published a new book of poetry and wrote a poem called Sweet Grass. And To me, it sounds like this poem speaks to that haunting question. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And she says, will the hungry ox stand in the field and not eat of the sweet grass? Will the owl bite off its own wings? Will the lark forget to lift its body in the air and forget to sing? Will rivers run upstream? Behold, I say, behold the reliability and the finery and the teachings of this gritty earth gift. Eat bread and understand comfort. Drink water and understand delight. Visit the garden where the scarlet trumpets are opening their bodies for the hummingbirds who are drinking the sweetness and who are thrillingly gluttonous. For one thing leads to another. And soon you'll notice how stones shine underfoot, and eventually the tides will be the only calendar you'll believe in. And someone's face, whom you love, will be as a star, both intimate and ultimate. And you will be both heart-shaken and respectful, and you will hear the air itself like a beloved whisper, oh, let me for a while longer enter the two beautiful bodies of your lungs. What I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind that I had to, since somebody had to. That was many years ago. And since then, I've gone out from my confinements, though with difficulty, and I mean the ones that thought to rule my heart, and I cast them out, and I put them on the mush pile. They will be nourishment somehow for everything is nourishment somehow or another. And I, I have become the child of the clouds and of hope. I have become the friend of the enemy, whoever that is. I have become older and cherishing what I have learned, I have become younger. And what do I risk to tell you this, which is all I know, Love yourself, 
and then forget it and love the world. So on a lighter side from David Butfield, says Hunshan, that great and crazy Chinese poet a thousand years ago, said we're all like bugs in a bowl, all day going around, never leaving their bowl. I say that's right, every day climbing up the side and sliding back down over and over again. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself, or look around. See your fellow bugs. Walk around, say, hey, how you doing? <laughs> say, hey, nice bowl. <laughs> so, lastly, let's just sit for a moment. Hmm. This next beautiful reading that I'll end with is from Barb, Bob Sharples, who's a Dharma teacher in Australia. It says, don't meditate to fix yourself, to heal yourself, to improve yourself, to redeem yourself. Rather, do it as an act of love, of deep, warm friendship to yourself, and in this way, there is no longer any need for the subtle aggression of self-improvement. For the endless guilt of not doing enough, it offers the possibility of an end to the ceaseless round of trying so hard that wraps so many people's lives in a knot. Meditation is an act of love. May all beings be at peace. I think we all know only too well, and perhaps part of these distractions is this self-loathing, this judging mind, the endless guilt of not doing enough, the ceaseless rounds of trying so hard that wraps our lives in knots. May we all be at peace. And perhaps by unwinding these knots, Acknowledging the distractions, working with them and through them, our mind begins to become steady, clear, like a luminous light, being still, being present, being here. May all beings be at peace.